You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. We're now going to turn to God's Word together, and uh, this evening we're looking at uh, Matthew 25. We're in Matthew chapter 25, and uh, verse 14 through to verse 30. Matthew 25, 14 through to 30. I think it's on page 977. I checked earlier, but I've kind of forgotten. Is that right? 977 in the church Bibles? No. 9994. Sorry. Just in case you have a church Bible and struggle to find that. So, Matthew 25 from verse 14. The parable of the talents. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man. Harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then. You should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be 
weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Our Father, we come again with empty hands, waiting and wanting to receive from you the pure goodness of your word, that our lives might be changed and that we might truly be found on that great day as those who hear those wonderful words, well done good and faithful servant. We thank you that you have accomplished the forgiveness of our sins on our behalf through all that Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary, bearing our shame. And yet we know that in response to this grace that you have poured into our lives, you call us to live lives worthy of that calling. And so speak to us, we pray, and change us for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things that the Lord Jesus spent some considerable time teaching on through the parables was not only the reality that there is coming this day when all things will be made new, a day when his great kingdom will be ushered in, but also how we or what we as his people are to do in the light of his second coming. In other words, as people who no longer believe that this is all that there is, as people who are eagerly awaiting the goal of our salvation, people who believe that he will one day stand upon the earth, as we thought about this morning, and as people who belong to this same Jesus, this King who is returning, how are we to wait for our Master's return? And that's really the big theme of this entire section of Jesus' teaching that we find ourselves in this evening. If you look back to the start of Matthew chapter 24, the context here was that Jesus was asked by his disciples when his second coming would occur. What would be the sign of the end of the age? And what I think is very interesting and poignant here is if you scan across chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew, first of all, Jesus doesn't tell us when he will return. Instead, he says nobody knows the answer to that question except the Father in verse 36. And then from verse 37 of chapter 24, chapter 24, verse 37, all the way through to the end of chapter 25, his entire focus in this big chunk of teaching is not on when he will return, but instead it's on what his people should do whilst we wait for his return. It's always amazing, isn't it, how every two or three years, maybe every five years, there seems to be a new teacher who springs up, who claims to have the inside track on when the Lord Jesus is going to return to the world. Have you noticed that? And yet, what does Jesus say? He says, 
Not even I know the answer to that, but only the Father. And so he's basically saying here, instead of concerning yourself with the when question, here is where your focus should be. First, understand that it will happen. It is an absolute certainty. Secondly, it will be sudden, like in the days of Noah, so we're to stay awake. And three, here are some things that you are to be doing so that on that great day you will be ready and you will be received with a wonderful and warm welcome from this king of kings, this king who is to return. And so with all of that context in mind, the specific message of this parable that we're looking at this evening is that as Christ's people... And that is important in itself because he's speaking specifically here to those who would profess to be Christians. He's saying we are to wait for his second coming as people who understand and who accept that we've been commissioned to maximize and to multiply the gifts that he has entrusted to us. As Christian disciples... We are to wait for the second coming as people who understand that we've been commissioned to maximize and to multiply the gifts that he has entrusted to us. In other words, this is really all about stewardship. What are we doing with what the Lord Jesus has given us? Now, there's a couple of things that we just need to unpack here. First of all, Most of the English translations describe these workers in the parable as servants. The Greek word is actually doulos, which specifically refers to a slave. And that's going to be important for our understanding here. Some of the English translators maybe change that to servant purely because when we think of slaves, we think of the kind of degradation, the kind of abuse that marked the slave trade in later centuries. But we need to remember here that whilst that kind of oppression and abuse did take place in the first century, slavery in the first century was a very different thing than what it became in later, later generations. Let me just explain that, because this is important for our understanding. First of all, slaves at this time, they weren't just made up of one race of people. It wasn't the case that, you know, someone said, well, you are this race, therefore you are a slave. You would have slaves who were Romans, some slaves would be Jews, some would be Africans, some would be Indian, from all different ethnicities. Secondly, slaves were often very well-educated people. And so sometimes a slave would perform a function would effectively be employed as an accountant or as a lawyer by someone who was very wealthy but who didn't have any skills in that area or who lacked education. And so the person would be a slave to fulfill that function for the master. And so what would happen sometimes is that a slave would be a person who maybe once ran a business and there would be the downturn in the economy or whatever, the business goes bankrupt, and so the slave would then effectively sell their family into slavery, whereby they would then find themselves in a context where they were being paid, they were being fed, they were getting shelter, they were being looked after, and they would have a relatively normal existence. And so that's the first thing here, slavery 
was a different thing in the first century. And it's that kind of imagery that Jesus is speaking of throughout this parable. And as I say, we'll see why that's a bit important later on. The second thing is to do with this word talent. Now, when we think of people being given talents, we probably think of Britain's got talent or we think of the X factor. Well, maybe not. But we think, you know, Lionel Messi is a very talented footballer. Ibrahimovic is a very talented footballer. Now, there's a topical one. But actually, the Greek word here, talenton, this is a word that actually described a measurement of weight. And usually, it would be a measurement of weight that we use specifically in relation to money. Now, I'm not great with numbers, but just so that we can get a handle on the kind of scale that Jesus is speaking about in this parable, one talent at this time would apparently be equivalent to about 6,000 denarii of silver. And in terms of average salaries at this time, one denarii would be paid to a worker for one day of work. So that 6,000 denarii would be the equivalent to about 18 years of pay to a standard day worker. Now, if all of that's just gone totally over your head or sounds about as fascinating as going to see Acker Bilk in concert, here's the point. When Jesus speaks about these slaves being given talents, one talent would be equivalent in our terms to not too far short of half a million pounds. So when he speaks about one of the slaves being given five talents, We're thinking here about a man who's been entrusted with something like 2.5 million pounds, about four million dollars. Why is that important? It's important because it underlines the nature of the relationship that Jesus is describing here between the master and the slaves. This is not a master who's treating his slaves with oppression, with injustice. Instead, he's entrusting them with something of huge value and of significant responsibility. So with all of that context then in mind, what he's doing here in this parable is he is very simply painting a picture of two very different responses to this stewardship responsibility. The first kind of stewardship which is symbolized and brought to us in the story of the first two slaves in the story, is faithful, it is profitable, and it is rewarded greatly. The second type of stewardship, symbolized and brought to us by the third slave in the story, is unfaithful, it is unprofitable, and it is solemnly condemned. And so let's take these one at a time. First of all, the profitable, faithful stewards. Jesus tells us in verse 15, the master distributed different amounts of money to these three slaves. And he did that according to his assessment of their ability. The first slave was given about two and a half million pounds. The second was given about a million pounds. And these two men had clearly a lot in common. Because they took what they were given, they went out, they immediately put it to good use. Maybe one of the men bought a field, hired some farm workers, made some money by 
selling off the produce. The second slave maybe bought a couple of fishing boats, started a business, distributing, selling fish all throughout the region. We don't know. But what we do know is that at some stage in the future, at a time that would have been determined not by the slaves, but by the master, a time that probably would have been unknown to the slaves, but known to the master, the master called a meeting. Now you just picture the scene here in verse 21. As I think about this in relation to the actual story, the parable, these men going out and doing stuff with this money, I can't help think of Sir Alan Sugar, you know, in the, in the boardroom at the, the apprentice. Just picture him. There he is at this big boardroom table. Let's just bring this into today's terms. He's at this big boardroom table and over the other side of the table are these three potential candidates. And so he turns to the first man, and there's sweat dripping down his forehead. And he says, well, I gave you 2.5 million pounds. What have you done with what I gave you? The man looks at him and he says, well, Sir Alan, it's good news. I've managed to double your investment. Here is five million pounds. He hands him a black briefcase with nice bundles of crisp one thousand pound notes. What would Sir Alan Sugar say? I think he would probably say, well done. He'd say, you're the kind of worker who will fit right in in my business. You're the kind of worker who will not look out of place in my enterprise. Then he turns to the second candidate and he says, what about you? How did you get on? Well, he says, I did quite well too. I also managed to double your investment. Likewise, he hands over a briefcase, this time with two million pounds inside. And so again, what would he say? He'd say, you're the kind of man who will fit right in to my business. You're the kind of worker who will not look out of place in my enterprise. But notice here, just as we turn away from the apprentice for a second and come back to the Bible, Jesus gives us two wonderful glimpses of heaven here in his response. Because not only does he speak of this wonderful, warm reception that is given to these two men who are faithful with what they've been given. Well done, good and faithful servant, in verses 21 and 23. But he says two further things to these two slaves. First of all, he tells us something about the activity of heaven. He says in verse 21, You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Now isn't that a little bit strange considering what we've just been thinking about, the fact that these talents would be the equivalent to millions of pounds in our terms. And yet Jesus is saying, you have been faithful with a few things. So now my reward is to put you in charge of many things. I don't know what your perception of heaven is, but I think it's here we're being reminded, you know, that contrary to that popular understanding that heaven is this place where we're floating about on the clouds and wearing some white cloth and playing a harp to one another or whatever. What is Jesus saying? He's saying heaven 
is going to be a fully functioning city where every single person will have different degrees of responsibility, all based upon our lives here on earth, but massive in comparison. And the difference being, we will never tire as we perform those responsibilities. We will be perfectly able to perform all of those responsibilities and tasks that he gives us to do. And all that we do in the eternity of God's heaven will always be with the right motivation. It will never be corrupted or tainted by sin in any way. It will all be purely and totally for the glory of our Savior and our King. And out of a love for the brothers and sisters who belong there. Isn't that a wonderful thought? In other words, Jesus is saying here, he is simply reminding us that there is this intricate connection between what we do with what we're given down here and what we will do for the rest of eternity. Doesn't that shed a whole new light on everything that we have in the here and now? Doesn't that change our whole perception, our our mindset and our sense of motivation? When we consider the things that we have been given and what we might do, whether it's here in church, whether it's in the workplace, in our home life, whatever it might be. Doesn't that spur you on? Doesn't that make you think, wonderful, the Lord is going to reward these things. And we're going to have responsibilities. Second, he he describes the joy of heaven. Again in verse 21 and 23, he says, You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And then this. Come and share in your master's happiness. Now again, here's why it's so important that we think of these men not as servants, but as slaves. Because a slave, no matter how profitable they were for their master, no matter how kind that master was for the slave, the ultimate happiness still belongs to the master. The slave might feel good, his self-esteem might be a little bit boosted because he knew that he was doing very well, but ultimately, all the profit still belongs to the master. It is all his money. But what is Jesus saying here about heaven? He is saying the joy and the blessing and the happiness that he enjoys in his heaven as the eternal God of the universe, the one who owns all things, will actually be shared with, it will be known to, and it will be experienced fully by all his people. That is what he's saying. You see, in this lifetime, even on our very best of days, our happiness and our joy and our peace is always compromised. It is always compromised because, as we're thinking about this morning, we live in a fallen world. 
And it is a world where there are so many struggles. It is either compromised by something that happens external to us, something that happens, maybe it's on the news, maybe it's in our family, maybe it's to do with our work circumstances. So many things that can compromise that peace and joy and happiness externally. And then it can also be compromised internally. Because of a wrong thought or an inappropriate feeling, a wrong feeling, a wrong response to something that happens or some other outworking of our imperfections. But not on that day. Jesus is saying the joy, the happiness, the blessing which he purchased us for by his own precious blood will be known to us fully It will be known to us constantly and without any interruption for the rest of eternity. Pure, uncompromised joy. But there's another slave mentioned in this parable. And it's actually a very solemn word that Jesus ends this story on. Verse 24, then the man who had received one talent came Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy slave. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, You should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have in abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless slave outside into the darkness where there will be weeping And gnashing of teeth. Now the question is, why is this man so solemnly condemned, so seriously condemned? I mean, most people reading this story would have at least a bit of sympathy with this man. After all, it's not as if he went out and he simply squandered all of the master's money. He didn't go down to Dundee town centre and spend all of the money, just squander it all, spend it all on himself, pour it down the toilet, the master still gets his money back. Isn't he being a little bit harsh? Isn't he being a little bit over the top? But again, this is where this dynamic of slave and master comes in, in that relationship. Because as a slave, this is a man who has not only been purchased and is being looked after and paid by his master, but he's also someone who on that basis no longer belongs to himself. He belongs to the master so that everything he has and everything that he's been given is always to be used in a way that reflects that relationship. It is always to be used in a way that shows respect, submission, and honor to the master. 
But instead of that, by his lack of effort, burying the cash, and what he says of the master in verse 24, I knew that you are a hard man. What this man actually does is he shows himself to be someone who might have the title of slave, but he's never actually humbled himself and entered into the kind of relationship which the master desires of his slaves. And so likewise for you and I tonight, what then becomes of first importance for us as we apply all of this to our lives is not just that we ask ourselves the question, what am I doing with what God has given us? Although that is always a very good question for us always to ask ourselves. But what is absolutely crucial here is that we understand and that we accept and we live in light of the true nature of the relationship that we have with God in Christ. That we realize that first of all, we are not our own. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Why? Because we have been bought at a price. The very next verse, 1 Corinthians 6.20. So that we're no longer sons and daughters of darkness, but what are we? What does Paul say that we are? We are slaves to righteousness. Romans 6, verse 18. Why is that so important? It's important because unless we have come to know this relationship in our own lives... Purely and simply, by turning from a slavery to sin and darkness, and by submitting to the righteous, good master, King Jesus, then we're destined to become like the third slave in the story. But if, on the other hand, we've come to see through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and to understand and accept and rejoice that under him, under the fact that he is master over our lives, we're no longer our own. That everything we are and everything that we have belongs to this master. Then we will see it as first importance to do all that we can to maximize and to make use of the gifts that he's given us for the glory of his own name. Do you see that the crucial thing in this parable, this is not works-based Christianity. This is the outworking then of someone who has come to receive salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To have come to that point in our lives, to have received Christ as our Savior and our Lord, is to receive him always as our master, the one who owns us, so that we are not our own, and so that everything we have is for him. It is for his glory. And that should never be a scary thing to a Christian, because what kind of master is King Jesus. Is he like the judge that we thought about this morning in the parable of the persistent widow? He's not. He's nothing like that. He is the good God. He is the patient God. 
He is the gracious God. He is the fair and just God. He is the God so loved the world who gave his only begotten Son that all who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And that is what he holds out to everyone here this evening. If you have never come to bow the knee to this King, King Jesus, then perhaps tonight is the night when you need to do so. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But he also said, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Let us pray together. Father, we rejoice and we praise you for all that you have given to us in Christ your Son, the one who lived the sinless life of righteousness so that we could be declared righteous, the one who paid the price of our sin, the awesome price on the cross of Calvary, the Christ who has been raised gloriously from the grave, the Christ who reigns at the right hand of the Father and who even pleads for his beloved sons and daughters night and day. We praise you and we thank you for all that you are for us in Christ. And yet, Lord, as those who belong to you through him and in him and by him, we realize that we have such responsibility for this brief time that we have here on planet earth to use that which you have given to us for your own glory, for the furtherance of your eternal kingdom. So forgive us, we pray. Forgive us for our complacency. Forgive us for our worldliness, for being enticed and trapped by the many things of this world. And help us, we pray, to go forward from this place with eyes fixed upon the glory that awaits all who are yours and with lives that would be lived in a way that reflects that awesome privilege. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.